you have a Bible, you can go to the book of Titus. That's what we've been studying for a few weeks now, with a couple of weeks off. And as you get there, <clears throat> about 10 days before my birthday this July, I got a present from the movie industry. Barbie came out <laughs> just around my birthday. Confession time. Who has seen the movie? Raise your hand. Come on. Come on. Oh, wow. More people than I thought. Okay. Um, no judgment here. I haven't seen the movie. I don't plan to watch the movie. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's what we're talking about. Barbie. It is the number one movie in America and in the world this year. It made $1.45 billion when it came out. I don't know if it's still in theaters. Is it still in theaters? No? Okay. So in, that, <laughs> so in the time that it was in the theater, globally, it made almost a billion and a half. And it only cost $100 million to make. That was a good investment for Hollywood. Whoever made that movie, the director, the producers, of course, the studios, that was a great investment. 15 times the amount of money came in for that. And this was the most successful movie made by a woman. That's what the news reporters wrote when they reviewed this movie. Now, the story of Barbie goes back to 1945. Okay, I figured you'd want to know this. Back in 1945, there was a woman named Ruth, Ruth Handler. And she had two kids, a boy and a girl. And the girl would play with paper dolls, and the boy would play with this little doll. He named him Ken. And so she wanted her daughter to also have a doll that would be like the doll that her son was playing with. And um, they traveled to Germany for some purpose, and she found this doll called Build Lily. Build Lily. And so she bought three of them, and she kind of envisioned that this could be something that my daughter would enjoy playing with. So she bought three of those dolls, came back to the States, I think they were in New York, and redesigned this doll, and out came Barbie. Now, her husband didn't believe that there was a need for this kind of a doll, this plastic figurine. Uh, the business partners that he had also didn't really believe in her. But they still made the, the doll, and so in 1950. Uh, yeah, 59, March 9th, 1959, Barbie debuted. The first year, they sold 350,000 of these dolls. The production could not keep up with the demand for the next three years. There was such a high demand for this doll. Now, at the same time, you have marketing starting up on television. And so that was a massive reason why this doll was so successful. It became a household name. And if you know the story of Barbie, she's had a fantastic career. She's had over 200 different jobs in her existence. Okay, there is astronaut Barbie, surgeon Barbie, Olympic athlete, downhill skier, air up, air, um, TV news reporter, vet, I guess she went to war at some point, rock star, doctor, army officer, air force pilot, summit diplomat. I'm not going to go through 200, just come down. Uh, rap musician, that was, must have been a 90s thing. Uh, presidential candidate. Candidate. She didn't make it, apparently. All right. <laughs> Baseball player, scuba diver, lifeguard, firefighter, engineer, dentist, and many, many, many more. So she must not have been very stable or good at her jobs. She kept changing them. The whole thing, and you know, can see there, she's the, there's even handicapped person. Um, not person, doll. <laughs> Now, this whole thing expanded into books and movies and clothing and cosmetics and video games. And if you know... 90s pop music, Aqua, Barbie Girl. Who listened to that song? <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, but I heard that song. <laughs> yes, good old Eurodance. <clears throat> for those of you who are super diehard fans of Barbie, this is good news for you. This year, nope. <laughs> She's more alive than ever. <laughs> this year. They broke ground in Phoenix, Arizona to have a theme park that's going to debut next year in 2024. So you can now go actually to Barbie Land World and enjoy yourself and go through the Barbie Beach House is one of the things you can do. And the rides that you're going to have and go-karts and all this other stuff. Here's my favorite story about Barbie. So in 2014, so almost 10 years ago, they came out with a book called I Can Be a Computer Engineer. Okay, Barbie is the key player in this book. 
And so she tries to be an engineer, a computer engineer, but she accidentally infects her own computer and her sister's computer with spyware. And so she has to appeal to two male friends to help fix it. So, of course, criticism came like crazy. Barbie doesn't need help from men to do anything she wants to do. So Mattel apologized. They withdrew all the books that were in production and for sale on Amazon. And they came out with a new book. Instead of saying, I can be a computer engineer, it's called now Computer Engineer Barbie. It's not a possibility. No, she is. And she became a game programmer. So she must have gone to programming boot camp, figured it out, and out came this book. Of course, she's back to normal now and is successful. The reason I talk about this is not because this is a billion and a half dollar movie. But because as you read the articles about this movie and just the way it began to pull in the culture of our day, a term that kept reappearing in multiple places was patriarchy. Barbie brought back the conversation into mainstream media, into the world about patriarchy. Because apparently I know nothing about Barbie. I don't think I've even ever handled a Barbie. But <clears throat> she lives in this world where she is the star, right? Matriarchal world. And Ken is basically just uh, exists in that world. In the movie, apparently they come into the human world. He gets introduced to patriarchy and tries to export patriarchy back into Barbie world. And there's a conflict over it. Is that a fair synopsis of the movie, those who have seen it? There we go. See, I don't need to watch it. So because of this, professors and analysts are talking about, okay, let's talk about patriarchy. This is a real thing. Let's talk about this in our world today and how it's a dangerous social construct that we need to be aware of. And so this one professor at UC Santa Cruz wrote this super long article saying, I'm grateful that this summer's Barbie film has moviegoers around the world talking about patriarchy. It takes us, this movie, to investigate the way our daily lives are impacted by patriarchal constructs. And so I take my first year students at UC Santa Cruz and expose them to this idea of patriarchy, helping them understand that their backgrounds need to be unpacked, how the individual gender, racial, and sexual identity makes them particularly privileged or oppressed in our patriarchal society. My goal is to help students understand the patriarchal structures that define our existence by showing them how they have been personally negatively affected by expectations of manliness or by being sexualized as objects. So in this movie, Ken and Barbie uncover a similar realization as they end, leave the Barbie land for the real world, and then they come back. And so one student from this person's class, this professor's class, said this, my eyes were really opened to just how many struggles in our society are traced back to patriarchy. That's the reason I bring this up, is that this is starting a conversation, not at the university campus only, but in our society, that there's such a thing as patriarchy, and it's something that we need to eradicate. I'm not going to stand here and say that there has not been an abuse by tyrants and dictators and men in all of human history, and currently it happens. Just think back to the events of the last three weeks in Gaza and Israel and how the religion of Islam does exactly that, abuses the women in their society. And you need to note that I watched some videos about the first charge, right? The terrorists, as they were coming into Israel, they weren't yelling free Palestine. They were yelling Allah Akbar. In other words, they're motivated by a religious system in which they are the man in charge. And from that understanding, that theological understanding in that perspective, they are tyrants and dictators and those who abuse. And we've seen the stories and I'm sure you've seen some of those videos. All that to say is, yes, there are individuals who abuse women. And it's a horrific thing that it happens. But as we come back and say, okay, so as the current culture, and this isn't new, Barbie didn't start this conversation, but as this current culture is trying to now discuss patriarchy and the evils of patriarchy, as they call them, all evils, all patriarchy, the fact that the man is supposed to be the provider and the one who cares for his family and the one who works hard 
and the one who makes decisions that, that all that is evil and that needs to be eradicated. That's the argument from multiple articles that I read. I think we need to be mindful that as Christians, we have to evaluate that assertion and think biblically. Because the passage for us this evening addresses men. And so we can't just pretend that those kind of passages don't exist in the Bible. So then what does the Bible say to men and about men? And then the conversation this evening is going to be not about patriarchy necessarily, but it is going to be about men in the church and their role in the church. And not just men, but leaders, men who are leaders in the church and what God expects of them. And I want you to look at verse seven. I'll read verses five through nine, but look specifically at verse seven, because that sets the expectation very clearly. Chapter one, verse seven, for the overseer or elder, that would be another word for another translation of this word, must be above reproach. We'll talk about that in a bit as God's steward. That's the key. The understanding of stewardship or management comes with responsibility and comes with service. The biblical concept of being a steward in the church of God, in a family, it actually is a position of service. You could replace that with servant. An individual who is supposed to serve others, not rule over others. And not be a dictator or a tyrant. And so as we talk about elders in the church, we need to understand that the biblical expectation is that these men are stewards. They're servants of multiple areas in the church. And I want to explain all that this evening. The reason we're talking about this is not because I want to talk about Barbie or because all of a sudden I want to talk about this because literally this is the next passage. So if you're new to our Bible study or perhaps you're new to the church, this is what happens here. We're just going to go slowly, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we'll talk about what the Bible means in the next section. And this is the next section. So let me read for us beginning in verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Now I is Paul, the apostle, leaving Titus, his protege, his student. He calls him my dear child in verse four, my true child in the faith. He left, he left him in Crete in order that you would set in order or fix what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That is, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So a couple of weeks ago, we started this book and I said that there is the introduction of Paul as the author who presents himself in verse one as a bond servant. And that really is his identity. He's here on behalf of God. On behalf of Jesus Christ, he's the author of this book and he views himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's got a mission and he's got an identity. His identity is rooted in Christ. We talked about that at length, meaning our identity also needs to be rooted in Christ. We don't find meaning and value in life in what we accomplish or who we know or where we live or what we're going to live or what degree we get. No, our meaning in life comes from our relationship as bond servants of God. Now our mission or Paul's mission is to be an apostle of Jesus Christ in order to help others. And so he says, for the faith of those who are chosen of God. So those who are called by God to be saved, he wants to improve their faith, invest into their faith, increase their faith. And verse one also says, then the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and also help them understand scripture in order that they would become more godly, more like God, simply put. In verse 2, he says, and in the hope of eternal life, that is to say, I'm telling them that there is eternity at stake when we talk about these things. And this promise of eternal life, the hope that we hold on to, 
comes from God who doesn't lie. He promised this long ages ago. But at the proper time, in other words, in eternity past, God made this plan. But at the perfect time in human history, he activated the plan. And we mean that Jesus Christ died to make that salvation possible. In his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. So Paul says, I've been entrusted with this message. I'm going to communicate this message as if it's a commandment from God. And then he says, I'm writing this to Titus, my true child. We have a common faith. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that's the introduction to this little letter. A private letter from Paul to his student, Titus, and that's how we broke it out. And the last point is the assignment that Paul gives to Titus. And that is what introduces our little section for this evening. The assignment is to fix things that are broken in Crete. Now, in verse 5, he says, I left you there so you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. That is to say, there are multiple cities on the island of Crete, which means there are multiple churches on the island of Crete. And so Titus's responsibility wasn't to one location, but it was to multiple cities, multiple churches, and to go into those churches and reset things that were broken. We talked about Titus as an individual who was a fixer. Paul sent him to Corinth. He sent him to uh, Ephesus. He went to multiple places in the Roman Empire, churches that Paul would have started. And then there was something that was amiss. And so he would send Titus to correct certain elements. That's exactly what happened on Crete. And so Paul now sends Titus to fix certain elements on this island. And so he says, fill the leadership vacuum. The expectation of godliness that appears back in verse 1, and I've said that it reappears in the rest of the book. Well, that's why we're calling this study Doctrine and Deeds, because our deeds, our lives, are a result of our doctrine. You are what you believe. Ultimately, you will frame your life around your theology. And if it's a Roman Catholic theology, you're going to live like a Roman Catholic. If it's a Muslim theology, you are going to live like a Muslim if you're faithful to that theology from the Quran. So what you believe will dictate how you live. That's why it's doctrine and deeds. The teaching that is followed by a specific lifestyle. And Paul doesn't get to women and men and young men and young women and older men. And then to workers in chapter 2 until chapter 2. He starts with the leaders of the church because the church community will reflect the leadership of that community. Paul's no, Paul knows that. And that's why he says, you have to start with those who are teaching the Bible, those who are leading the church. And so we're going to talk about elders first, what kind of men there are to be. This is not Paul being patriarchal. This is the model that God established for the church. I want to take you to two places that hopefully will help you understand the theology of eldership. Go to Ephesians in chapter 2. The same Paul is writing this at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. Just go back a few books to the left in your Bible. And so in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles, non-Jews, who were brought in into the category called the people of God. And now they are saved and they'll spend eternity with God. They'll become chosen people. So he says, you're no longer a stranger or an alien separated from God, that is to say. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So now he says the church idea is a living organism like a building being built together carefully, slowly into a dwelling of God, but the foundation of that building is apostles, prophets, 
And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the first stone that is set in place, the most important stone, so the building isn't crooked. Flip over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul explains what it means to be in the church. And the first 16 verses of this chapter are all about you have a specific gift. You're supposed to use that gift to edify other Christians. You will get a reward for that use of that gift. And in verse 9, he says, well, verse 10, the one who ascended is himself the one who descended far above. Let me rephrase that. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens so that he may fill all things. That's Christ going up to heaven, coming down, and then it says he gave gifts. This is what he did. Verse 11, he gave some as apostles. We already heard about them. Some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. And this is their function, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And then the rest of the verses talk about this body maturing and growing together. But again, those individuals who lead are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I say this so that we understand. It might be the first time you're thinking about the structure of the church. And who are these individuals? And what role do they fulfill? Why do we have John MacArthur preaching every week? Why do we have elders who are men in this church? Why are pastors men in this church? It goes back to these passages and others. Where the Bible explain to, explains to us that God's model for the church is to have individuals who are qualified according to a specific standard that is in our passage for tonight. And we need to test them and examine them and evaluate them before we put them in those roles as they equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I want to make sure you understand that because it's so easy to read an article from a UC Santa Cruz professor who's trying to deconstruct all male authority because it's toxic masculinity, as she calls it. And she's not the only one. It's been going on forever. Let's just say that all the way back to Genesis 3, when Satan attacked the family construct from the very beginning and he keeps doing it. So what I'm saying is when we talk about the church and the reason that this church is set up the way it is set up, it takes us back to our passage that God is the one who established such a structure, such a model. And Paul says, this is what you are to do in these churches on the island of Crete. Go and establish, or verse 5 says, appoint, set up elders in every city. In other words, setting things in order will require godly leaders, godly elders for each church. And these are described as follows in verse 6. If any man is above reproach. Thinking about this idea of being above reproach. You could say, well, Mark, so this whole section is to elders. I'm not an elder. I'm not even a man. So how does this apply to me? Well, my response is this. This word for above reproach does appear five times in the New Testament. It appears here. It's the same word in verse 7, right below it. An overseer must be above reproach. Same exact word. Okay, so twice, he wants to make sure that you get the importance of the meaning of this word and the standard to which I'm calling you. I'm going to say it twice. Titus. Now, it also appears in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in verse 10, this word applies to deacons. So 1 Timothy 3 Verse 10, Paul also writes this letter and it says in deacons in verse 8, verse 10, these men are first to be tested. Let them serve these deacons if they are above reproach. Verse 11, women deacons is the implication. Likewise. So the categorization of being above reproach for deacons or elders applies to both offices now. There's only two offices in the Bible in the church, deacons and elders. So now we're talking about the two positions that provide leadership are required to have the same quality of character above reproach. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. You might be thinking, wonderful. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.8. 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul also wrote this letter. And he says this. Christ Jesus at the end of verse 7, 
will confirm you to the end. In other words, he will get you to the end. In your battle with sin, in your pursuit of righteousness, he'll get you to the end. Blameless, same word. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the above reproach expectation is promised to every single believer. And now go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. The last reference to this word in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 22. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, it's a promise that you will be blameless or above reproach. In 1 Timothy, in Titus, it's an expectation of deacons and elders. In Colossians 2, beginning in verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So prior to meeting Christ, you were separated from him and you pursued evil deeds. Yet, verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So Jesus' crucifixion on the cross created a reconciliation between you and God because of Jesus. So that, or in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, of which I, was procla- which I proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So now in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, the same exact term, the same expectation, qualitatively speaking, is now expected of every single believer. So the application of what we're talking about isn't limited to the pastors or the elders or the deacons. It's expected and promised to every single Christian. So as you think about this message, and we'll have some time to discuss it in just a few minutes, I hope you begin to say, okay, this above reproach standard, Christ will expect of me. He does expect of me today. So whatever that word means, I have to live up to it. So please don't walk away thinking, well, that's for Mark or that's for Chris Hamilton or John MacArthur or for another elder. No, no, no. This is for every single Christian. So what in the world does above reproach in verse six, back to Titus one, actually mean? I looked up a Greek dictionary today for the first time in Bible just recently. And this is what it says. It's made by Cambridge scholars. It means that you're not subject to a complaint. Okay, means nobody complains about you, about your life, the way you're living your life. It means that you are impeachable. Now, we know about being impeached, don't we? Josiah used to work for, kind of a shame, but you have to say Donald Trump. He used to work for Donald Trump many, 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 many years ago. Okay, now he's in the news every single second of every single day, right? But look, many presidents have tried to be impeached by the opposing party. So the whole idea of being impeached means the opposing party, the hostile party to you, is trying to find something negative about you, whether it's in your office, in operations, or your character, in order to impeach you. The people that are watching your life as a Christian, and as they evaluate you, They can't find anything to impeach you over from the Christian confession. That's what that means. When this word is used about property, that's all about people. The first meaning what I said. When it's used about property, it means that nobody can actually sue you to take away that property. Meaning you can't be taken to court. So apply that to a human. Nobody can take you to court and judge you for your Christian character. And what immediately comes to mind is the life of Daniel. Providentially, this morning, my devotions were in Daniel chapter 6. And I was just reading that. And Daniel 6 is the story of Daniel becoming the number two man in command back in the day. This is... He's uh, probably in his 70s, maybe 80s at this point in his life. He was 13 or so when he was exiled from Israel to Babylon. And then he saw Babylon come and go. Then he saw Medo-Persian, that empire, come and go. And now he's serving under the king Darius, who 
who's a Medo-Persian. And so Darius likes Daniel. That's how the story starts. And Darius has 120 governors of his empire, of his kingdom. Verse 1 says of Daniel 6. And then these 120 governors, they're called satraps and commissioners. In verse 4, says this, they began to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. So they tried to find something that was amiss in his job. He was one of the key leaders in the empire. And they said, can we find something for which we can impeach him as a government official? Verse 4. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. So he was impeccable in how he performed his job as the number two in command in the Medo-Persian empire. So they continue, verse four, in as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found in him. So it just repeats the same thing. He was completely clean. Then verse five, these men said, we're not going to find a ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So now the the eye of review, let's just call it that, moves away from the public office. Let's just evaluate his job, what we can see, his public office. And let's see if we can find some corruption. And maybe he will be impeached over that. Dereliction of duty, theft, whatever. Come up with any category you want. They found nothing. Verse 5 says, fine, let's look at his private life. Can we find something in his religious activities, his personal piety that we can accuse him over? And so verse five is all about, let's look at how he obeys the law of God. And in verse six, they come to the king, King Darius. They flatter him, live forever king and on and on and on. And they basically say, we have this idea. Nobody should ask anybody in this kingdom, not even a God. Certainly not any human, but not even a God for any help. Nobody should pray to anybody but you. People should always come to you for help because you can solve any problem. That, you know, boosts somebody's ego. Hey, you're the answer, man. You can solve all problems. That's a good idea. So he agrees to this for half for 30 days. Obviously, if you know the story, that's a trick that they can now accuse Daniel of praying. He was praying three times a day. When this law came out and Darius signed off on it, he found out that Daniel was actually praying three times a day. And it says that Daniel continued to pray three times a day with his windows open. So people would even see him publicly praying, not just privately praying. praying. The result was he was thrown into the lion's den. God protected him. He recovers. He comes out safe. The king is, uh, honors God. The ending of chapter 6 is very powerful when he says, the one God who saved you. Before him, kingdoms need to tremble and fear. He's the living God. He's, the, he's enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and then in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, his successor. So you've got this story in the Old Testament about Daniel being viewed publicly and privately, and he was impeccable. That's the idea here, is that when people review your life, both publicly and privately, your personal relationship with Christ, whatever they know about it, and then your public walk at work, at church, in your family, with your friendships, they can look at both and they cannot find anything against which they can bring a reproach. Remember, yes, in Titus 1.6, this is expected of elders and pastors, but it's also expected of every single Christian. So the way this applies to us is for us to actually evaluate ourselves. Is that the kind of life I'm living? That if somebody could impeach me based on my claim to Christianity, they couldn't. They would fail. That's the application of this passage. And so Paul says, when you start talking about leadership in the church, make sure the first thing you look at is that this person is above reproach. And that is the expectation 
Now, secondly, he talks about being the husband of one wife. So this now, the focus that Paul has shifts from this general category, the spotlight of being above reproach. And he says, let's talk about your family. And so the way we're going to look at this paragraph tonight and then next week, we're not going to finish this week. We're going to look at it next week as well. You should see a slide with the three divisions of this paragraph, verses five through nine. And you can see that the first focus is the family, how you are in the family. The second is your character. And then the third is your doctrine. So we are talking about elders. Let's pull back and see the audience here. The audience is the elders of the church. And so they are to be above reproach. But secondly, they are to be a husband of one wife. So now we're looking at somebody who's fully faithful to his spouse, to his wife. In a book called Rediscovering Pastoral Ministry, you see this quote of what it means to be a faithful husband. So you can pull that up next slide. If you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, and to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family, and you will find the people who know him best, who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them about the kind of man he is. The reason that, I don't know if this is Pastor John or another author in this book, but the reason that this quote focuses on the family is because the home is the training ground for Christian leaders. If you have a wife, then this is the training ground for the Christian leader. Why? Well, because in the, in the book of 1 Timothy, for example, chapter 3, the idea of the church is called the household of God. So you've got this idea of the family of God, the household of God is a church, just like the household unit. And in the household unit, management is expected. Operational management is expected. Care, concern, provision, protection. All that is expected of the husband. And so Paul applies those principles and says, if you want to know if a person can actually take care of the church, function in the church, lead the church, care for the people in the church, protect the people in the church, from false doctrine, from individuals who come in and try to subvert leadership. Sometimes there's people who come in with hostile intentions. They're not here because they love Christ or because they want to benefit this church. They're here to find a spouse and they pretend to be Christians. And so many times, unfortunately, people fall for that trap and then trouble happens. And I'm saying, honestly, that happens, unfortunately. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. And so pastors, elders, Christian leaders, both genders, men and women, deacons, deaconesses, we're supposed to look out for those things and protect one another from any kind of, the Bible calls them wolves, sheep, uh, wolves in, in sheep's clothing. And so the idea is that you manage your house. And if you can do that, then you might be qualified to actually be functional in the church. Now, literally, we're talking about being a one woman man. So it doesn't say you have to be married. It just says you have to be a husband of one wife. In 1 Timothy, this is a parallel passage. Titus is written to Crete. 1 Timothy is written to Ephesus. Timothy was in Ephesus. His friend Titus was in Crete. And Paul sets about similar expectations in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Whenever we talk about what it means to be an elder, qualifications, those are the two passages people always go to. And so it says this in verse 1, If any man aspires or desires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Same idea, an elder. As an elder, then, he must be above reproach. Same idea. The husband of one wife. There we go. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So that's the idea is that in Paul's mind, we have an analogy. You have to manage your house and then you can be qualified to manage the church. Speaking specifically of what it means to be the husband of one wife, 
Paul isn't saying you have to be married. Because then he would contradict himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, hey, if you choose to serve the Lord for the rest of your life as a full-time career, it's better that you're single because you won't be distracted. Not in a bad way. He's not against women. He was married. He probably was a widow. The vocabulary that he uses about himself in 1 Corinthians 7 is not, I was never married. It's actually used of a widower. So that's my conviction. Paul was married. She died. That's why he knew so much about marriage. But he says, you're freed up to focus on the Lord fully if you want to pursue ministry 100%. So in that sense, it's better to be single if that's your career, your goal, rather. Now, if you are married, great. Then you make sure that you're faithful to one wife, to one woman. And there are some individuals, according to Matthew chapter 19, who are made to be eunuchs. And Jesus talks about that. In other words, people have chosen to be single for the sake of the kingdom. So we have to understand that this is not a requirement to be married. It just says that if you are married, then the standard is faithfulness. Why would he say that? Why? In 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1. Because that's not the culture of the Roman world. In fact, everybody was expected if you were in leadership, a senator, a politician, a governor, a businessman, you were expected to have a girlfriend. There are poems written. I read some of them. I did Roman history at UCLA, and so I had to read this kind of stuff. But there are poems written about how you seduce a woman to get her to be your girlfriend. You've got your wife at home. She's caring for the kids and all that. How do you seduce a woman at a drama, Greek drama, or a game? You go to the Colosseum, you watch a game. How do you kind of seduce her to be your girlfriend? So there's people, Ovid, for example, he wrote a poem about that. So that's the culture where the expectation was to have a girlfriend and to be promiscuous. That was normal for the immoral world of the Roman Empire. Paul says that is not how things happen in the church. In the church, your eyes are only on one woman if you're married. That's exclusivity. What if you're not married? What if you're a single guy? Well, then take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. So 1 Timothy 5, remember, it's written to Timothy. He's a young man. Verse 12 of chapter 4 says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. In other words, he's young when he reads this letter. Okay? Don't let anybody look down on you as a young man. Chapter 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. So this is how you treat older men, like fathers. To the younger men, like your brothers. To the older women, like your mother. And to the younger women, like a sister, in all purity. In other words, your conversations, your interaction is pure if you're single. As a single man, that is. So that's the expectation in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Again, the, bi- the biblical model is, doesn't contradict itself. Whether it says that in 1 Timothy or in Titus, it doesn't matter. That's the expectation. Obviously, there are other passages that talk about fleeing sexual immorality, impurity, and all that applies here as well. And so Paul's standard for a man who is going to be a leader in the church is that you are faithful to your spouse. Well, he continues back to verse 6, and he says this. You're to be above reproach. You're to be a husband of one wife. And then within the family discussion, we're still in the first category, the family, he says, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. That is, children are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Why do I say that? Because in verse 7, he'll speak specifically about the elder overseer who is not addicted to wine, pugnacious, fond of sordid gain. He has self-control in verse 8. So now in verse 7, this idea of being in dissipation or rebellion specifically applies to children. So this is a bit controversial. Okay, there are a few passages in the Bible that are not always easy to interpret. This is one of them. There are differing opinions on the meaning of that phrase even here on this campus. So when I teach this in seminary, or if I've taught this in other seminaries, I try to say, okay, there are two key views that people in take from this statement. And maybe you've just read this and says, that's pretty easy. Why is there a disagreement? What's the controversy? Having children who believe. How hard is that to understand? Well, I already read this, but please put your finger back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
And in verse 4, remind, let me remind you, an elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So a similar idea. His children must be under control with all dignity. In Titus 1.6, it says, having children who believe. So it seems that in one place, he says, it's about obedience, control in the sense of not tyranny, but obedience. And here, it may seem like children actually have to be saved. So those are your two options. One says, if you're an elder, all your children have to be Christians. The other view says, if you're an elder, your children have to be obedient, not unruly. You have good, let's just say, oversight and fatherly care and control over your family. Those are your two options for this passage. I'm not going to give you names of who lands where, but I am going to try to explain to you why I believe in both places it's the same meaning. Okay? And the meaning is we're talking about obedient children. Okay, obedient children, not necessarily saved children. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons for that. The first is Titus 1.6, children who believe, equal sign, or that is to say, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the further explanation of children who believe is right there in the next phrase. They are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, Paul here uses a very unique, rare word for dissipation. It's a word that was associated with the god Dionysius. Okay, some of you might have heard about him. He was one of the oldest gods in the ancient world. There's evidence on pottery, kitchenware from the ancient world that he was celebrated in 900 BC. So a thousand years before Paul writes this, this god was known in the ancient world. And celebrated by women, children, men, slaves, free, politicians, emperors. In other words, every sector of society, every gender, every social class worshipped Dionysius. That worship was as follows. In order to connect with this God and to truly worship this God, you had to lose self-control. You had to fully give yourself up. The way you did that was to be drunk and sexually moral. So we're talking about orgies in the ancient world. They were associated with the worship of this God. And so the more drunk you were, the less control you retained of your faculties, your ability to think and to reason, the more intoxicated you were, the closer you connected with this God. Okay, that was the expectation and that was the goal. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18, when he says, As a Christian, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Same word. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. The indication of being filled with the Spirit is you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing melody. You sing and you make melody with your heart to the Lord. You're always grateful in the name of Jesus Christ, and you are submissive in the fear of Christ. So verse 18 says, don't be drunk with wine. That is dissipation, debauchery. That word is actually a synonym for the name Dionysius. Asotia is the word in the Greek. That was his name, second name. Dionysius or Asotes. And so Paul uses a word that was actually used to describe this God, his second name. Let's say it that way. Because it was so closely affiliated with losing self-control. So, taking that meaning back to Titus 1.6, when Paul says, if you're an elder and you have children, they need to be those children who believe, that is to say, they are not out of self-control. They're not liking self-control. They're not out of control. They're not accused of dissipation, this debauched lifestyle, or rebellion. Now, that, I would say, agrees with what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When he says, if you have children, then you have them under control with all dignity. So in other words, in both places, then the meaning becomes the same. It's about oversight. It's about management. 
It's about control. It's about obedient children. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, there's a parable about a faithful servant, a faithful steward. The same word for children who believe, believe is the same word as used in Matthew 24. Children who are faithful, like the faithful steward in Matthew 24, who did his master's will. The focus there is you have a job to do. You have a responsibility to fulfill and you're doing that compliant with your master's will. That's the idea. So this word for belief, yes, it's the word for belief in Jesus Christ. It's one word, same word in all over the New Testament. But it also is used to defer, refer to people who are compliant, obedient. They do what they're told to do like that faithful steward. Beyond this, I would say the Bible doesn't ever place the burden of salvation on the parent. God saves. The Holy Spirit regenerates. He gives life. The flesh profits nothing. John 6, 63, for example. Now, the parents are responsible to train up their children in the ways of the Lord. We know that all over the Bible. And they're supposed to do that. We're not talking about the duty and the responsibility to teach the word of God to the next generation. We're talking about who is responsible for somebody's salvation. So children who believe may make it seem like, oh, well, you're responsible to make sure that your children believe and are saved rather than you teaching them how to be obedient. And then Lord willing, through the teaching of the word of God, God will bring them to repentance. As you think about the terminology, even now I'm leaning more in first Timothy chapter three, when Paul says the one who manages his own household, well, having his children under control, the word control there is actually a military term talking about, they are standing up to the rank and the authority. So just in any, in the, in, in the military, you have ranks and you're supposed to follow the chain of command. And that's the terminology Paul uses in first Timothy. He says, your children understand that they have an authority over them. And they're compliant to that authority. And so as we think about the expectation of a parent, I do believe it is the parent's responsibility to teach the children the gospel and the ways of the Lord and how to be obedient and how to believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior who saved them from their sin. But you also have to understand this, that in the New Testament, the kids of the apostles are never brought forward as evidence of their qualification to be apostles or to be elders, right? There's not a single illustration of any apostle being qualified to fulfill his role because of an obedient child. So if that was the case, you could say, well, where's your child who's obedient or disobedient? Let's evaluate Paul's requirements. Obviously that takes us into other expectations as well. Old Testament, for example, many spiritual leaders sadly did not have children who were believers. So all to say is this, I am, my, my own interpretation, my conviction is that when you pay, take those two passages, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the two places where we have in the New Testament expectations of elders, the two places and no other places, talking about children in reference to the elder, their dad, who is an elder, the relationship, what is that supposed to look like? I think it's more consistent to interpret both of those passages as obedience, because otherwise the elders in Ephesus are supposed to simply have children who obey and under control, nothing about belief. And then the children on Crete, well, you guys have a bigger standard. You actually have to be saved and not just obedient. Do you see the difference? I think because the word in the original language is elastic in the sense of it can use faithful, mean faithful, obedient, or believing. It's more consistent to take that to be faithful. All right. I had to do this. I don't do this often, so if it's the first time, I'm sorry that you're like, what is happening up there? Why is it dragging me all over the Bible? Because that's how we sit down and interpret Scripture when it's not super clear. And the responsibility that we have as Bible students, I'm not talking about pastors, professors, uh, teachers of the Bible. I'm talking about every single Christian. The responsibility that we have when we read the Bible, we're like, what in the world does that mean? The first principle is the Bible never contradicts itself. 
You cannot put 1 Timothy 3 versus Titus 1.6 and let them mean different things. You can't. They have to mean the same thing always. God doesn't misspeak. God doesn't contradict himself. That's the first principle. And if it's taken us 20, 30, 100, 500 hours to figure it out, we do that. Let's hope it doesn't take 500 hours. But it t- sometimes it does take effort to do that. Number two, we do need to lean on other research. The reason I bring up Dionysius and Asotes, because that's the vocabulary. And you understand the worship of this God and how it can help us interpret the context of that vocabulary and why Paul uses that word that only appears a couple of the times in the New Testament versus common words that appear hundreds of times. So I would say this, the principle is if a word is rare, probably Paul is intentionally looking at a rare word because it has a more specific meaning and he wants to import that meaning into this passage and help us interpret it through that lens. And of course, the application here is this. If you are in leadership, not only do you have your eyes only for your wife and nobody else, and you're faithful to her, to her, but also if you have children, that you are teaching them to obey the word of God. And they follow the word of God, and you pray that one day God will save them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to only look at that first section, the family. So as an elder, as a leader in the church, we are to be faithful to a spouse if we have one, to raise up children to be faithful if we have them. Because according to Paul, that is an example or an illustration or an expression of being above reproach. And if you're not an elder, if you're not a deacon, if you're a Christian, whether you just became saved or you've been saved for 30 years, it doesn't really matter. The same exact vocabulary is, refers, is used to refer to you and God's expectation of you. That you too are to be above reproach. And that nobody can impeach you from that profession. I'm a Christian. Because of the way you live your life in your family. With your kids, with your spouse, if God gives them to you. I know that most of us are single here. I get that. But remember, we're just picking up the next phrase and the next verse. And this is what God expects. So to wrap it up, and then we'll come back to the next two sections next week, I'd like to say this. This is what our pastor wrote. A man's ability, now speaking specifically of elders, a man's ability and maturity to give sound biblical leadership to his personal family is a qualification for giving leadership to the family of God. At issue here is not being a good, hardworking father, but being a godly one. The reputation one has at home And the influence wielded there is an accurate assessment of one's character. I think that's a good way to just say, why does Paul focus on this specific issue at the very beginning? Because he says, the church is a family. It's the family of God. And just as you care for your family, you love your family, you invest into your family, you protect your family, you lead your family. You lead your wife and you lead your kids and you love them and care for them. If you end up being asked to lead in the church, the way you do that in your family has to translate the way you do that in the church. And if you can't do it in the family, you're not qualified to do that in the church. That's the bottom line for elders or deacons. But backing up for all Christians, all of us are to be above reproach. And I'd like for us to discuss it for just a few minutes. What does it mean for you in your life, in your place in life right now? Whatever you're doing in your life, whatever career you have, what does that mean for you to be above reproach? Let me pray to that end, and then we'll spend 10 or so minutes discussing this message. Lord God, we are grateful for the clarity of your word. And through some work, we can get to conclusions that we can then apply. I do pray for all of us here that as we reflect on Paul's challenge to Titus as he fixes things on Crete. That the qualification to be a reproach for the elders of those churches rings true for us as well. Help us to be above reproach. Help us to be impeccable in our character. To be impeachable. Help us to live lives as people look in our public or private lives. They can't find anything that is worthy of taking us to court over. 
because they'll lose. Because we do our best to follow Christ. And those who are here and may not be followers of Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives and help them understand the expectation. That there's no way they will ever honor Christ, obey Christ, follow Christ, please Christ. Apart from submitting and confessing that they are in sin. And only Christ can save them from that sin. And that they would ask for forgiveness. And that will start a relationship by which they can honor you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.